All right, so I'm going to talk about um, duty and desire in the southern soul uh, as, as expressed, at least how I see it, in these stories. And my hope for this talk is, uh, as is for all of my talks, is not to shut down a conversation with my opinion. Thank you. All right, am I good? All right. Uh, is but to open up a conversation for interpretation from all of you, uh, and so I am. I am not going to be interpreting these stories as much as saying what I noticed about them, uh, in hopes of creating a conversation that extends beyond this talk. Uh, but in order to, I, I, in order to begin, I want to tell you how intimidated I am by this topic. Um, because I grew up very, I, I've never lived in the South. And, uh, and what I have learned through reading Southern literature is how profoundly formative the place of the South uh, seems to be on the souls of Southerners, which is a very different experience from my own. Uh, so how many people here consider themselves Southerners because you grew up in the South or live in the South now? Okay. Um, and how many of you uh, recognize yourself in these stories that we've read? Yep. Right. It was, I, we were talking about this at dinner last night, um, and a couple of comments were just so illuminating to me. One was somebody at the table said uh, that... You know, they, they didn't grow up in the South, but now she now lives in the South. And, and in reading the stories, they feel like home, is what she said, right? But she doesn't know why. I couldn't put her finger on exactly what it is, right? Does that, is that right for those of you who are... Now, how many of you grew up in, um, in a placed experience like this, but it wasn't the South, Um, and so, and how many of the people who just raised their hands um, recognize themselves in the story, but not as a Southerner, but at more as themselves, right? You're like, oh, I know how that feels, even though it wasn't the South. Right? That's really interesting to me, because that's not at all my experience. I grew up in California on the West Coast, in the Bay Area, during the tech boom, right, of the late 80s and 90s. Um, <clears throat> I, in my college, or excuse me, not my college, my college was in Indiana, very different. Um, my high school was 20% white and 65% Asian. Right? Um, when I moved to Indiana to go to college at Taylor University in a small town in Indiana, Upland, Indiana, there's a couple of people here who live in Upland, um, I, uh, I had never seen so many white people in my whole life in one place. And I didn't know, like I didn't know that there was a different America than where I grew up, which is partly, I think, because of the self-centeredness of me um, or childhood, right? That just kind of accepts the terms of your life as being universal. Right? Um, and some of it, I think, was because I had no sense of place. And, 
and no no placed. I, I really love the the terms that um, that Wendell Berry uses in the story we read at home when he says that Art Rowenberry's memories were all placed and peopled, as if place and people are verbs. Right? I love that a lot, and that was not at all my childhood experience. Um, particularly about the South, I will say my childhood experience was completely inadequate and insufficient. Um, I remember in fourth grade, Mrs. Datlow's class, she was a very good teacher, um, I remember learning about the Civil War from like, you know, one of those big old textbooks, right, just that's at a, at a, at a, at a school that doesn't know that you shouldn't use textbooks. Um, uh, and I remember, you know, it had like highlighted portions about the Civil War, um, and, uh, and I remember one message from, from our studies of the Civil War in fourth grade, which is, and I call it the Civil War intentionally because I never knew that there was another term, a way of thinking about it until I was an adult. And I remember one thing, which is uh, North good, South bad. And we won because we were on the side of the good. I had a conversation in... (laughs) New York City uh, at a cigar bar with some friends. I was there for a conference. Uh, You guys are going to think all I do is drink alcohol and read books. I promise I have a bigger life than that. But uh, uh, I was having a conversation at the Carnegie Club, a good New York classic, uh, with a friend of mine. Um, And it was, I was in my 30s. I had children. I was homeschooling. And it was the first time I had ever heard anybody in my whole life say something critical about Abraham Lincoln. And I was flabbergasted. I was like, what? So in reading Southern literature as an adult, I encountered for the first time a completely unique American experience that was placed and peopled but also deeply divided on a psychological level as well as a communal level. And when I say divided, I really mean more that the literature wasn't divided in itself, but that it expressed or looked at honestly a a division within the American experience that's profoundly formative from that time until now. That was new to me. And I say that ashamed of that. I wish that hadn't been new to me. So it is, I will admit, intimidating to speak in the South about the South as, to, as feeling like a little bit of an outsider which that is also interesting in talking about the division of the American experience, right? That's interesting. And I believe from what I have read, my experience, which is not comprehensive, but it seems to me to be that Southern literature is particularly expressive of the divided soul of America. 
I think it is the most significant repository of the American experience of the divided soul. Right? The same way that uh, the great Russian authors that we read uh, are particularly expressive of the divided soul of Russia, right? Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, right? um, and others. And when we read those, it's interesting, we just did the Close Reads Retreat uh, on the Brothers Karamazov, and what was very interesting to me is that we spent a, most of that time uh, over the course of the week talking about the individual characters and the universal questions that they brought up, which that's a great way to read, a really important way to read. But when I read American Southern literature, I'm thinking a lot about being American, about the societal or communal structures that are illuminated by the, by the writing. Right? I don't necessarily recognize that in Southern literature, excuse me, in Russian literature, because I can't relate to it, right? Um, I can kind of look at it as an outsider, um, but I don't know what it feels like to be Russian. And so I kind of look more at the psychology or kind of the universal spiritual kinds of questions that are brought up, right? But with Southern literature as an American, I'm like face to face with the fact that this is my country. And yet these this particular experience is not mine. And so I feel in a way that Southern literature has given me my country in a new way. Uh, so many of you know that duty and desire is kind of like my thing. Um, and the reason is because uh, oh, several years ago I was having a conversation with, um, with Andrew Kern, David's dad, uh, and he was talking to me about... Um, uh, about the story of the prodigal son in, in scripture. And he kind of made this offhand comment saying, uh, he said, uh, he said, well, you know, like all of life kind of comes down to the parable of the prodigal son. And then he kind of went on with his life. And I'm like, can we go back to that? Like I have some follow-up questions about that because when he said it, it immediately kind of rang true to me. Um, and I need to think about it. And, and I, I don't know if that's my conclusion is that that's definitively all of life comes down to the parable of the prodigal son, but I, I think that there's something really true there, and here's why. Uh, in the story of the prodigal son, you have uh, the, the younger brother, right? Um, it's, that's the title of the story, well, at least how we think about it, <laughs> um, that there's this rich father, and he has two sons, and the young brother uh, takes his inheritance, he asks for it early, and then he, he leaves, and then he squanders it on wild living, and then he ends up impoverished and starving, uh, and attaches himself to uh, a landowner and feeds the pigs, and he's so hungry that he fills his belly with the pods that the pigs eat. Uh, and then he, the story tells us he comes to his senses and he says, I will go home and I will tell my father, I will confess to my father what I have done and ask to be brought on as a servant in my father's home. Uh, and so he makes the journey home and he's practicing his speech, right, which I find just sweetly endearing, right, because I do that. Um, practice what I'm going to say uh, if I have something hard to say, right? Um, and when he is yet a long way off from home, his father looks out, um, gathers up his, uh, his, 
his robes and runs to his son and embraces him and kisses him, brings him back and says, kill the fatted calf, we're going to have a feast. Uh, For my son who was lost is now come home, he was dead, he's now alive again, Um, and we're all going to gather for a big party. Meanwhile, the older brother who's in the field and has never left his father, uh, hardworking, uh, he sees that his brother has returned, uh, and he says uh, to himself and to his father, uh, why are we killing the fatted calf for this guy? He comes to his father and he says, father, I have never left your side and you've never even given me a young goat to have a meal with my friends, let alone kill the fatted calf and give me a feast. How could you do this for this son of yours who has squandered your, your in, his inheritance on prostitutes? And the father says, son, you are always with me. All I have is yours. But your brother has come home. He was lost and is found. He was dead. He's now alive. It is fitting that we feast. So what Andrew said to me, which is interesting, this has not a lot to do with this, but I always tell this part of the story because I want you to think about it. He says, the problem with the story uh, is that it is the prodigal who is reconciled to the father and Christian parents are always trying to raise the older brother. Fascinating, right? I'm like, true, true. I love that. But it started me thinking, it started me on this road, right? Because if you take this story as an allegory of the soul, there's always this dutiful part of us, right? That is constantly thinking, what does my father want? What do I need to do? How do I sublimate myself in order to do my duty, do the right thing always. That's a good thing to do. But the danger of the older brother is that they are so consumed with duty, they have no joy. And they have a lot of condemnation towards those who have not fulfilled their conception of what duty is. On the other hand, you have the prodigal, squanders his inheritance and wild living, completely consumed with his own desires. It's very interesting to me that even in his, uh, uh, in his impoverishment, the detail that we're given is that his belly is empty. His appetites are not fulfilled, and that's how he decides to go back home driven by appetite, not just for food, but for pleasure. But it is that appetite that reconciles him with the Father. Jesus Christ never condemns desire. But it's only one thing that the Father wants for both of them. One thing that he wants for both. And that's for each of them to come to the feast. That the feast is, if you think about it, a feast is more than a meal, right? A feast is a, uh, one of two, I think, one of two uh, sacramental visions for the unity of duty and desire that we're given in life. One is a feast, the other is a wedding, <laughs> 
right? And both of those, interestingly, are used in Scripture as the uh, metaphor for the kingdom of God, a feast and a wedding. But a feast is a union of duty and desire because a feast is prescribed, right? There's a way to go to a feast. You dress in a certain way, you sit in a certain way, you use your utensils. There's, there's an order, a decorum to a feast. And then there's also a fulfillment. You eat better food. You eat more food, right? That's the way a feast is supposed to be. It is desire and duty unified and reconciled with each other. And that is what the father wants for the duty-driven soul and the desire-driven soul. Once I saw that, I started seeing it everywhere, everywhere. Right? If you think about your own life, I'm willing to bet I've never talked to a single person who has said, no, I don't think this is true. And maybe you are the one, who knows? But for me and for everybody I've talked to about this and for everybody I see in stories, including the Southern literature that we're reading for this week, if you think about the sins and sicknesses and sufferings of your life and in your soul, I am willing to bet it is because the thing that you want is different from the thing that you ought. And that's what creates such division in our stories individually, communally, and spiritually. And I kept, these stories are no exception to that. These stories, as I was looking at it, uh, at these particular stories and then other Southern literature, Southern literature is peculiarly, I like that word, but it's hard to say, peculiarly characterized by competitions, divisions, failures, or misunderstandings of duty. Think about shingles for the Lord, right? Rez has competing duties for that day. He should be up on the roof, right? Up on the church roof, helping re-shingle the roof. He should also be at home on his land, right? He has a duty to the community and a duty to his own work, And those things really cannot be reconciled in that one 24-hour period. And that's what creates all of the comedy and drama of that story. Southern literature is also characterized by excesses, distortions, perversions, or rejections of desire. Think about Asbury and the enduring chill, right? What does he want? He wants to be left alone. He wants to write the great American novel. He wants to be justified. He's so consumed with his own unnamed and unfulfilled desires, right? That it, make, it literally poisons him because he cannot even fulfill the small little duty of not drinking the milk, He also wants to be disembodied, right? He wants nothing to do with the limitations and uh, the, uh, what he seems to perceive as the degradedness of his own body, right? He wants to live this disembodied, spiritual, intellectual, capital A, artist experience, right? He knows so much more than his small town upbringing. And he wants nothing to do with it. 
and yet he ends up getting a cow disease. What's more body-oriented than that, right? And he's so offended by his own disease because it forces him to reconcile or, at least, or, to, or to intentionally ignore the fact that he is human and embodied. The stories that we read portray an American South that does not know what it wants because it cannot trust what the surrounding spirit of the age is telling it to do, right? At all strata of society. And I think that this does go back to the embodied experience of, of the war. And even before that, Wendell Berry argues very compellingly in The Hidden Wounds and The Need to Be Whole and in other places, all of which are very, very much worth reading, that the core wound, the, the primary fracture in the American soul is slavery. Because we started, we are the country that started with an idea. We're the enlightenment country, right? We're the country based on freedom. We're not going to be like those old bad evils. We're going to start this country because we are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, because we're all created equal except for those people that we have enslaved and forced to work. Wendell Berry argues, like I said, very convincingly, that 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 irreconcilable division between the ideal and the wicked reality that was imposed especially in the South, has created all of the problems. And it will eventually, it's a small, well, it wasn't small, but it was a fracture that extends across time and place and that we've never been able to truly repent and so we cannot be healed until we do. And I think every generation keeps trying, we keep looking at it, right? In this generation, we are too. We're looking at it and trying to propose various solutions, right? But we haven't really communally repented. And that's what reconciles the, the prodigal son is repentance, right? We don't actually know what happens to the older brother in the prodigal story. We're not told if he comes to the feast. But we are given a model in the story of personal healing of the divided soul, which is confession, repentance, and then coming to the being, and then restoration, right? What's interesting, I've been thinking about this idea that uh, the idea of, of duty, um, which I think is very, uh, just really permeates Southern literature, is various conflicts of duty. Duty itself is fixed, right? What a person's duty is, I mean, I always think of, of um, Knightley, Mr. Knightley and Emma, when he says there's one thing a man can always do, and that is his duty. I really love that. Um, 
talk about a duty-driven author, by the way. Um, duty itself is fixed. It cannot be corrupted. What a person's duty is, 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 is always a person's duty. It is you know, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God, right? That is what we are given to do. Um, but people and societies can fail to understand or enact duty properly. They can misunderstand it. Think one thing is their duty when it's not. And we see that in these stories quite often. Mr. Mowry comes to mind in the presence like he's constantly trying to figure out what, it, what is his duty to these boarding house people, but he misses it. There he's, he, he can't quite see it all the way, right? And so he misses, these really gla- he misses this very glaring, obvious sin at the core of this community, which is adultery, which is a rupture between duty and desire, because marriage is the ultimate picture of duty and desire, the ultimate picture of it, because when you marry, my desire is for my beloved, and my duty is to him. And the minute before the sacrament of marriage, there are things that are not given to me to have with my husband until after that sacrament, right? Because it is the sacrament that unites them and brings us together to be one flesh. And now, forever, my duty is to him, his is to me, my desire is for him, and his is for me. And all of the problems come when one of those things are broken in a marriage. And adultery is the rupture of those things. And so in the story of the presence, we have a fall from paradise that's missed by a man, right, who can't, he, he wants to do his duty, but he can't quite figure out what it is, right? And then he has this really interesting rivalry um, with Miss Gilbert, right, who's always wearing white, right? And he thinks she's too hard on people, but she's the one who sees, So there's these characters that have this very, it feels almost like an ordinary situation, unfortunately, right? But it has profound spiritual implications within this story of the, the, the various complex interplays of duty and desire that's taken, taking place between these characters um, over the issue of the ultimate rupture of duty and desire in adultery. So duty itself cannot be corrupted, but people in societies can fail to understand or enact duty properly. But on the other hand, desire always has a proper object, always. But we fail to attach our desires to the proper object, and that's what creates problems for us. And we see that in the stories as well. So these stories explore the fault lines that lead to this cataclysmic divisions in the southern soul both individual and communal and spiritual, right? Manifested in characters and situations on all sides and strata of the deep cultural divisions, right? Race, class, wealth, work, relationships, both individual and communal. And we see, especially in these stories, the hidden wound, as Wendell Berry called it, of slavery that's not limited to racial divisions, right? It's deeper than that. Uh, Berry argues, oh, it's just 
so compelling his argument that one of the great, one of the deep wounds of slavery uh, in the American South uh, is, is, it goes beyond race. Because what slavery does is it takes a certain strata of people, a group of people, and they work on land they don't own. But on the other side, there, are, there were slave owners, which I hesitate to even call them that because one person cannot actually own another. That's a wicked term. But, but people who had enslaved others, and they're completely disconnected from their land. And then there's a third group, which Southern literature is very concerned with, which are poor whites who don't own land and are doing the same work that ought to ennoble us. It ought to ennoble us to work on our land. Like that's what we are given to do in the Garden of Eden. In paradise, we work directly with the created land, with the created order. It is given to us to do that. And when we impose an artificial order, it is wounding to our souls. And it is an artificial and degraded order to force somebody to do our work for us, Wendell Berry argues. And that, but what's really, and one of the things that these stories maybe don't explicitly uh, examine, but was certainly true, uh, is that in order to justify ourselves, we try, but this is true across the board. Everybody does this. If you want to justify yourself for something that you know is wrong, you try to convince yourself and others that what you're doing is right. Right? And this has certainly happened in every wicked regime in all of history, as well as in every wicked individual soul, which is, I will tell you all the reasons from the Bible why slavery is okay. And so therefore, what happens then in the, with, in the, and the North and the South, within the American experience, is I will try to justify something wicked by telling you it is your duty to do it and that you're allowed to do it. And that lingers in this story all the way from the time of the, uh, of the early plantations in Virginia um, through the American experience, through manifest destiny. This extends far beyond uh, in the enslavement of African slaves. This also goes to the driving off of people, the Cherokee people from their land and from, the in, from Indian tribes off of their land. We have done this over and over and over again in America. But it's Southern literature that's naming it and talking about it. So the hidden wound then is not limited to racial divisions. It's deeper than that. It goes to the land, to economics, the way we spend our money, the way we think about money, the way we think about consumption social class. And as one thing that, that Wendell Berry talks about that we see over and over again in these stories is the idea of neighborliness. Right? Like when, when Jesus says, love your neighbor, he doesn't just mean in the abstract, love mankind. Right? Whenever you see that on a slogan, run in the opposite direction. Right? 
because we are not given to love mankind, I'm given to love my neighbor, right? Wendell Berry also argues uh, in the need to be whole and in other places uh, that uh, he argues that the Amish communities are some of the only communities who take this command seriously because they put it to work on an economic level. When I'm given to love my neighbor, it also means to go help them out on their dairy farm. Because work is ennobling, not degrading. But with an economy dependent on, on, on enslaved people, work becomes degrading, right? And we see this in the stories, this kind of wrestling with the idea of, um, of, of the nature of work. What is my duty to work? Should I want to get out of work? So I notice that these stories depict multiple consequences of failure in duty and corruption of desire. Think about this, like duty is the word of oughtness, right? Look for words in the stories like uh, should, deserve, right? Commit or commitment, must, need, obligation, responsible or responsibility, earn, win, fail, right? These are all words connected to duty. Words connected to desire. Words, uh, that's the word of wanting, right? Desire, ambition, appetite. Look for references to food or sex. Affection, ardor, longing, hunger, thirst, you know, crave, fervor or zeal. Fire is the, right? Fire is connected to desire. So I'm going to give you a couple examples from the story and then I'll be done and I'll leave you to just kind of think about this and dwell on it and notice it within the stories. Uh, uh, One thing that really stood out to me was the contrast between the the stories at home and Shingles for the Lord. So uh, at home, at Art Rowanberry, conceptualizes duty as the pathway to happiness, right? And, and also to meaning, right? Multiple duties are mentioned and explored. The duty to home, family, uh, his father and brothers, right? Um, duty to work, farming. He describes the nature of work and how ennobling and salvific work has been to him, how healing work has been to him. Wendell Berry always, he strongly believes and advocates that farming is healing. The answer to the the destruction or industrialization of our urban industrial society is not to just leave wilderness out there. It's to work on the land and care for it and attend to it. We were having a conversation about this at dinner last night. Um, Some uh, uh, some people were sharing that there is family land in their family. There's land in their family that's gone from one generation to to another, and in hopes of preserving the land, um, the older generation is leaving it alone. But in so doing, that land is falling apart. Right? It's not being used. It's not being worked. Wendell Berry sees farming as healing to the soul, to the created order, and to the land itself. 
We were meant to have a symbiotic relationship with the land. We work it and care for it, as Genesis chapter 2 says. Adam was put on the land to work and to care for. And then also, in turn, that land nourishes, supports, and ennobles us. And the South had an agrarian life. And I think in Southern literature, I keep hearing this mourning for that loss. But no, with like a lament, there's such a deep lament in Southern literature for that broken link between the land and the people that has come from our own misuse of what we have been given. We're the ones drinking the milk and giving ourselves undulating fever, right? So in Wendell Berry's story, Art also expresses duty to his country, right? Military service. He didn't want to go, but he went and he did a great job. Also duty to his land, farming, husbandry. To his neighbors, right? Friendship, or as Wendell Berry calls it over and over again, membership. Simply because we live in the same place, we owe each other a duty. And we have created a culture of membership. The women help each other with the canning. The men help each other with the harvest. Also, he expresses a duty to the created order, right? The animals that he doesn't shoot. Which he would if he had to. But he's glad he doesn't have to. Because that gives him the opportunity to then be the man who cares for the created order. And preserves the created order. Now, Wendell Berry in the, st- and in, the st- in the story At Home and in others intentionally casts an idealized vision of American agrarian life, right? According to Wendell Berry, this is the way it ought to be. This is the way it could be, but it is not. We all know that. And we see that in the story Shingles for the Lord, which is very interesting. That story is interesting to me because it's a more complicated portrayal of the same or similar small town American experience than Wendell Berry gives us. Right? Okay, it's funny. Whenever I read Wendell Berry, I'm like, I will give up everything and go live in a southern small town. Like, eastern Kentucky, that's for me, right? Then I read, then I, then I read William Faulkner and I'm like, no way do I want to live in a place like that. <laughs> right? But they're the same or similar experiences. And they're the same or similar level of true, Right? Because we're not just about casting an idealized vision. We're also about looking at things the way that they are in this world. And that's why we need multiple perspectives of, similar cult, of the same culture. That's why we need all of these authors. That's not, we're not just reading Wendell Berry telling everybody to move down here and outside of Atlanta right, and start growing peaches, which I would totally want to do. That sounds amazing. But it's probably not. I don't know. Because we have to have these multiple experiences. Both stories contain place, faith, work, the land, family, community, and neighbors. Totally different experiences for the characters, right? Rez abdicates his duties, though, whereas Art Rowanberry fulfills them. Does that mean Art Rowanberry lives in a different place? No, but it does mean he has a different experience of the same thing because they see it differently, Within the story. 
He claims, Rez claims his duty to his personal work outweighs his duty to shingle a church. And then everything kind of comes from that in the story. So in both stories, the characters accept the bond of duty and, and at, but they have different experiences in trying to fulfill it, right? Which come from in here. It's really an interesting kind of contrast there. And at home, duty and desire are unified. And shingles for the Lord, Rez actually loses the things that he desires, right? His place in the social order, his half of the dog, right? Because he fails in his duty. Both stories uphold duty within their structure because Rez pays consequences for it. Because within the Southern short story, within the Southern literature, there is always an understanding or acceptance of duty. And I'm going to mention one more example and then I'll be done. Um, and that is uh, in this complication of duty and desire we find in a good man is hard to find. And Tim's going to talk about this story. Um, but to me, this is a glaring revelation of the Southern predicament. And the universally human predicament. This is not limited to the South, for sure, because this is also in my soul. Uh, the misfit has really good manners. Anybody notice that? Great manners. Right? He speaks respectfully. He calls the grandmother ma'am. He's ashamed of not wearing a shirt in front of the ladies. He literally asks permission of each of the family members to take him out into the woods and shoot him. He insists on his goons assisting or escorting the family into the woods. He's a good, dutiful southern boy. In almost all ways, except for the murder, he demonstrates good southern manners. The grandmother also has very good manners. She's gracious, ladylike. She never begs. She watches her son march out into the woods knowing what's going to happen to him. And she doesn't say anything except plaintively cry, Bailey boy, Bailey boy. The whole family walks out into the woods to be killed without lifting a finger because they got good manners. She's shot at the exact moment when she shows her true humanity. When she's illuminated by grace, her last words, why you're one of my babies, you're one of my own children, are both a final confession. She's confessing her complicity and participation in a world that produced the misfit. And an act of sacrificial love. She's loving her enemy at the moment of her death. It reminds me very much of, uh, of Priam kissing the hands of Achilles. Oh, excuse me. If, yes, yes, that's right. And saying, I have done what no man has ever done before. I have kissed the hands of the man who killed my son. She lifts up her hands. Supplicatory pose, right? Declares him one of her own children. The church fathers considered it the only true evidence of true Christianity that we can love our enemies. Right? We can fake or conjure everything else, but only a Christian can love their enemies. So this story, I think, manifests a fundamental fracture in the American soul as 
evidenced in the in the southern soul, which is also a universal, universally insoluble human dilemma, right? The veneer of dutiful manners that masks the mystery of human depravity and divine grace. And that's what we're looking for in the divided southern soul and in our own divided souls. So please let me know what else you notice. That's all I got time for today. Thank <clears throat> you.